0: fully understand the events on which I report. It was necessary to review the theoretical data on the Genesis device. As developed by doctors Carol and David Marcus, Genesis simply put, is life from lifelessness. It was the intention to introduce the Genesis device into a pre-selected area of a lifeless space body, a moon or other dead form. The device, when delivered, would instantaneously cause the Genesis effect. Instead of a dead moon, A living, breathing planet now exists, capable of sustaining whatever life forms we see fit to deposit on it. Welcome to We Came From the 80s, the podcast where we talk about movies we thought were cool. I'm Farron, your host, and this is a solo episode. It's part two of three, where I'm going to go through Star Trek's 2, 3, and 4. And so today we're doing Star Trek 3 The Search for Spock. So I suppose we should just get the vital statistics out of the way. Star Trek 3 The Search for Spock premiered on the 1st of June, 1984, and it was directed by Leonard Nimoy who would be the first of many Star Trek alum to direct Star Trek. Uh, Jonathan Frakes, of course, is known for doing quite a few of them. Uh, the guy who played Tom Paris, whose name I can't remember, he's done a bunch. Uh, Roxana Dawson has done an, a bunch of them. But Nimoy was the first. It was written by Harv Bennett, who also did Star Trek II. And of course it stars William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy, DeForest Kelly, James Duhan, Walter Koenig, George Takai, Nichelle Nichols, uh, it also includes Mark Leonard as Ambassador Sarek, Spock's son. He had previously played uh, Sarok in the original series episode Journey to Babel. Uh, he most notably also played the very first Romulan we ever see in the original series episode Balance of Terror. And he also plays the Klingon captain from Star Trek The Motion Picture, which is the first time we see a Klingon with the, sort of the new makeup as opposed to in the original series where they just sort of had brown paint on their skin. And he's the first one we hear... Speak Klingon. He also played Sarek in Star Trek 4, again in Star Trek 6, as well as the Next Generation episodes, Sarek, which is an excellent episode, it's one of the best, as well as Unification. It also stars Christopher Lloyd, who most of you will know as Doc Brown from Back to the Future. He plays Lord Kruge. Uh, Merritt Butrick is back, or Buttrick, I really wish I could pronounce that properly. Uh, Merritt Buttrick is back as. David Marcus, Kirk's son. Robin Curtis takes over the role of Savick from Kirstie Alley. She's also, again, in Star Trek IV. I think she's actually the better actress here. And John Larroquette, who most of you will know as the sort of the slimy defense lawyer from Night Court, he plays Maltz, one of the Klingons. So this movie was made on a budget of 17 million bucks, which was a pretty big deal for a sci-fi film back then. It made 76.4 million, so definitely earned its pay. This was, you know, after the raging success of Star Trek II, you know, despite the fact that they had killed off Spock and it was in some ways meant to be an end of the series, though there's... There are conflicting reports as to whether Nimoy wanted out or whether they offered him an out uh, by killing Spock, but it was pretty clear with the success of Star Trek II there would be more Star Trek. Uh, in fact, between Star Trek II and three, they had Nimoy host an episode called Star Trek Memories, which, back in the days of syndication, you'd often find would be on the tail end of the third season of star Trek. So they could have 80 episodes to sell instead of just 79. And it was literally just him standing in front of a screen and talking about some of his memories. They'd show clips from the show. It was clear that this was meant to sort of get people worked up for star Trek three. He does mention that he would be directing it. You know, there was more coming, all that sort of stuff. I'm not sure if they understood at this point that star Trek was about to become quite the phenomenon this was well before Star Trek: The Next Generation was a thing. Uh, certainly before Deep Space Nine and Voyager and Enterprise and the wonderful new show Discovery, and before any of that, I think they just thought they would carry on with these movies. And you know, Star Trek II had certainly shown the way. You know, had to add sort of a cerebral element, but also have the action that the original series was known for, but not unthinking. You know, blazing gun battles, a sort of a thinking man's action movie, which it did very well. Star Trek III is you know, a much darker film, but as you can see, you know, seventy-six point four million bucks. It it definitely earned its pay. So my memories of seeing Star Trek III are actually tied to one of the most, probably one of the most joyful memories I have from when I was a kid. When I was in grade three, I was playing. It was right near the end of the year. This would have been in in May. I was playing on the playground at lunch, and I heard someone call my name, and I turned around. And it was my mother, and she had come to pull me out of school. As it turned out, she my parents had decided they were going to take us to see Indiana Jones and a Temple of Doom. And that premiered on 23rd, the 23rd of May, 1984. So only a week or so before uh, Star Trek three, So we went to see it. It was a very cool, exciting thing. We pulled out of school. We went for lunch. I don't remember where. I'm going to take a wild shot and say McDonald's, but who the heck knows. And we went and we saw this. And I recall we saw it downtown. It was in one of these theaters that where... It was the only like it was just it was one screen theater. In fact, it might actually have been the same theater where I saw Transformers the movie, and it's just a really really cool memory of mine that we went and saw this film. But one of the trailers they showed was for Star Trek Three, and I remember it it upset me desperately because one of the things they show is the Enterprise exploding, and I remember thinking, "Oh my God, you know this what a horrible thing." Of course, the Enterprise, you know, was. You know, a big deal for Trekkies. You think, well, who cares about a ship? But the ship is almost a character in and of itself. Uh, that's certainly something that carried on into the next generation and and Enterprise as well, and Voyager and Deep Space Nine, where the ship or the space station, in the case of DS Nine, becomes almost its own character. So seeing the Enterprise blow up was kind of a big deal. I did. You know, I did get to see uh, Star Trek Three Search for Spock in theaters. I honestly don't remember who took me. I think it might have been my much older second cousin, Mark, but I'm not sure. But I remember I really, really wanted to see this, and my, you know, they weren't really into Star Trek, so that was sort of, that was out of the question. But anyway, Mark took me. And of course, I've seen every Star Trek film in theaters since then, except for the second and third J.J. Abrams films, because they're garbage. <laughs> Sorry, they're, they're, they're garbage. You know, when I saw it, I really liked it. I liked that despite the darkness, despite, you know, the many deaths and the the violence of the film, I thought it was a very hopeful film. I really enjoyed it. It was very exciting to see Spock come back. Yeah, spoiler alert. But it still stands out as one of my favorite Star Trek films. So there's this ridiculous idea out there... Uh, sort of this commonly held belief that the even-numbered Star Trek movies are really good and all of the odd-numbered Star Trek movies are really bad, and I think that's unfair. Uh, Star Trek The Motion Picture is, you know, it's just a very different type of movie. It's very slow. It's very contemplative. There's not really any action in it. Even the one space battle between the Klingons, starring Mark Leonard, actually, uh, as as the Klingon captain, even, you know, the battle between the Klingons and V'ger is sort of slow and deliberate, It's often snickeringly called Star Trek the motionless picture. I don't think that's fair. I think it's a great film. Yeah, Star Trek II is very good. It's very action-oriented. It strikes a good balance. Star Trek III, I think, is equally as good. Sometimes it's called Star Trek III The Search for Plot. Uh, Again, I think that's silly. I think Star Trek III, in some ways, is the best of the films, because it's about what I think draws most people to Star Trek, which is the relationships these characters have for each other. This is an entire film about characters sacrificing for each other, not for higher ideals of, you know, the queen and country, so to speak. They're not fighting in the name of the Federation or the survival of their ship. They're doing this, what they're doing, they're doing for one of their own. And I find that incredibly moving. Of course, Star Trek Four is also a good film. Yeah, Star Trek V is a, is, is a goddamn disaster. There's a reason why... Uh, Roddenberry considered it apocryphal. It's a bad film, mostly because it was an act of ego on the part of the director, which is unfortunate because Shatner is a very good writer. You know, he was a first-time director. I don't. I have no problem with the way it was directed, other than it was kind of clumsy in ways. Uh, my issue was just a bad film. Star Trek VI, of course, it's a very good film, but I thought way too clever for its own good. Star Trek Generations, an odd-numbered film, I think is very good. Like, yeah, it's it's effectively an hour or two hour long finale to the series after the wonderful next gen C- series finale, all good things. But I still think it's a very, very good film. Again, very contemplative, you know, first contact. Yeah. Even film. It's a decent film, but it's way too much of an action film for me. Star Trek insurrection. People sneer at it because it's an odd numbered film. Uh, they say it's like a two hour episode and that's exactly what it is. You expect nothing more than it's a two hour episode and nemesis, which was the final next gen. Uh, It was a disaster, but that's, again, what happens when you have a director who runs around the set yelling, I don't care about Star Trek. Well, great, why did you take the job other than, you know, for a paycheck? Uh, But it did give us Tom Hardy, if nothing else. Um, And yeah, obviously the J.J. Abrams films, we, we just, I ignore those, they're garbage. So again, I really like this film, I... There's very little to dislike. It has got the same feel as Star Trek 2. It's essentially Star Trek 2.5 in many ways. Uh, the art direction's the same. The camera work is very much the same. Everything's the same. Like they, I think they pretty much just sort of took the sets and ran with them. So I'm guessing there wasn't too much of a, a gap between 2 and 3. Quite often with these films, they have to start from scratch. They have to rebuild everything. But here, clearly they knew, you know what? I think Star Trek 2 is going to do pretty well. Let's hold on to this stuff until Star Trek three. You know, until we decide if we're going to do Star Trek three. The big, sorry, the big standout in, in this film, I think, is is sort of its its consistency with Star Trek two. That you know, two very different directors, Nicholas Meyer for two, Leonard Nimoy for three. And they're thematically very similar, and yet they're quite different. Like Star Trek two is is much more about characters. Sort of finding the top of their game, characters figuring out, you know, where they belong in life, and yet Star Trek Three is very much about screw all that. We have one thing we need to do. We have this one mission. It's going to ruin us. We're going to do it anyway. They're, I guess, in many ways, they're opposite because Star Trek Two, you know, the whole theme is the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one, and in Star Trek Three, the search for Spock, it's the needs of the one out weigh the needs of the many, which is actually something that's sad. So you know that's sort of what stands out to me, is that they took a theme, and they ran with it, and they flipped it in places, and it makes for an interesting comparison with 2. And then Star Trek 4 is of its own sort of thing, even though it is the end of a story arc. Okay, so let's press play and see what we got. Okay, so for those of you who listened to the Star Trek 2 episode, and I can't imagine why you'd be listening to this if you hadn't, you probably noticed I didn't spend a lot of time talking about the death of Spock. There's two reasons for this. The first is while well, watching it, it was it's hard to watch. It still is, despite the fact that I know he comes back from the dead. You know, watching one of your heroes die is never easy. So I just sort of I, I sort of let it go. But also because the first half of Star Trek three is entirely centered on the death of of Spock on that scene, and and I knew that I'd be spending a lot of time talking about it in Star Trek three. And in fact, the very first scene in Star Trek three is. The death of Spock. It starts off in the center of the screen, really, really small, and then it sort of slowly zooms out to fill the screen. It starts off in kind of a whitewashed, black and whitish, I'm not sure what the technical term is, and then only slowly becomes full color as we transition into Spock's funeral. They make a whole point of sh- you know they make a big point of showing sort of the the way these two characters you know they couldn't touch that, that they were separated by this this transparent aluminum wall. Spock was dying and, and Kirk, you know, was as close as he could be to him, and he knows the man is going to die. And you know Spock knows he's going to die, and he's he's trying to impart a last bit of wisdom on Kirk, I guess it's one of the best acted scenes in all of Star Trek I would put it right up there with the with the scene in sark where Picard takes on all of Sarek's emotional pain so that sark can finish a negotiation and just watching uh Picard sit in this room w- with counselor Troy and he's weeping desperately because he's He's sort of living through sorrow, a lifetime of pain of a Vulcan who has successfully held back his emotion. In the case of, of this scene, it's very mournful. The way they show this death scene, in many ways, it's like reopening a wound. They want you to know, if you've not seen Star Trek II, they want you to know what this film's about. It is about the death of Spock. And again, the entire first, the entire first third of the film is about exploring the the events around the death um, his interaction with McCoy which you know clearly shows that they put in it's almost like an Easter egg I don't think they knew there was going to be a Star Trek 3 at the time but they put this in sort of as a, a little bit of insurance we'll learn we'll learn about that later one thing I'll note is they they the sound and the video don't always synchronize. Like you're watching one thing, you're hearing different parts of the conversation for most of you know, after Spock has died, we're hearing the funeral, but we're still seeing Kirk sort of pressed, you know, leaned up against the glass. He's broken. He's exhausted. His best friend has, you know, has died an inch from him and you just, you sort of see the weariness in his eyes. This sort of we start to understand that Kirk has lost everything. I mean, this is a man. Yeah, he slept his way across the galaxy. He's been with a, you know, a dozen women, and that's just in the original series. He has a son, all this sort of stuff. But the most important person in his life, clearly, was Spock. And I don't mean that in a romantic way. Nothing like that. This isn't a shipping thing. Uh, you know, this is a man who meant everything to him, and he's lost him. He's lost his anchor. You know, the reason Kirk was a good captain has as much to do with Spock as it ever did with him. And, you know, to lose that is, you know, is devastating and and they really focus, you know, Leonard Nimoy really focuses on Shatner's performance here, the way he sort of deflates. Now, just as Star Trek II ended, uh, they sort of carry on in Star Trek III with Spock giving the opening opening speech from, from Star Trek, you know, Space, the Final Frontier. And then they go on to show, as they did at the end of Star Trek II, uh, Spock's burial tube, which is really just an emptied out photon torpedo tube, has soft landed on the planet. And they spend a lot of time showing this beautiful planet. Uh, You know, the genesis become this tropical paradise. And here is Spock's casket. I should also mention that the music, again, is done by James Horner. He does a wonderful job of playing on the Star Trek II theme. Uh, the music for Star Trek Two II and Three are among the best in the series. One thing I should note is when they show the the you know the palm fronds and these palm trees on on Genesis, they have a more menacing look than they did before. The the wind blows really hard. He's darkened the uh, he's darkened the palette of the scene a little more. Like you know, of course, we're going to learn that Genesis is a failure. The planet is destroying itself slowly but surely. It's falling apart. But here's our first hint that maybe this is a a slightly more hostile place than we had first thought. So looking at the credits, I noticed that it says introducing Robin Curtis as Lieutenant Savick. So Lieutenant Savick seems to be a vehicle for new actresses, uh, which is kind of funny because it's the same with Kirstie Alley. She'd been in uh, Hollywood for all six months when she was cast. I happen to think that Robin Curtis does a much better job uh, she's much more Vulcan. I just, I, think she's, I also think she's a really good actress. Uh, my understanding uh, is that in Star Trek VI, the character Lieutenant Valeris was played by Kim Cattrall. My understanding, based on actually an interview with Kim Cattrall, is that initially Lieutenant Valeris was going to be Lieutenant Savick and that they had, for whatever reason, decided not to go back to Robin Curtis. Maybe she wasn't interested. Maybe she wasn't available. I don't know. But they hired Kim Cattrall. I mean, this is long before her Sex in the City days. Uh, and she said, well, I don't want to play, you know, yet another version of Savic. Let's make a new character. That would have been interesting because, of course, Lieutenant Valeris is a traitor to the Federation. She conspires to assassinate the Klingon Chancellor. It would have been interesting had that been Lieutenant Savic, because we would have seen... You know, the story arc of what happens after you know the events of Star Trek 2, II, 3, and 4. She's only in Star Trek 4 for a second. Um, it would have been interesting to see sort of where her character went after all these years. And I often wonder how much better Star Trek 6 would have been if it had included Robin Curtis as an older, you know, Lieutenant Savage, though probably by then she would have been a commander. And of course, now we see, you know, in the credits we see uh, Christopher Lloyd as Krueger. Now, Christopher Lloyd, you know, he has a, he, he's all, he's almost always done comedic roles. You know, he he was a ta- in Taxi for many years, which was excellent. You know, Doc Brown. Uh, you know, he was in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. He played that scary judge. Most people don't remember. He he played Butch Cavendish in the Legend of the Lone Ranger, which is an '80s movie that I'm I'm fairly certain I'm the only one on the planet who likes. He can play the heavy, he can play bad guy characters, and, and he's still my favorite Klingon as a bad guy. Mostly because he's so brutal and he's so calculating. He has no problem just, just cutting through the bullshit and going straight for the throat, which normally I don't like with bad guys. I don't like the, steam, the steamroller effect. I recently rewatched uh, Infinity War, and one of the things that I found most offensive about the film is that Thanos is a steamroller. He's just—he's like—he's almost like the Terminator. He never stops. He—he he doesn't feel pity or mercy, and he cannot be negotiated with. Normally, I don't like that because it, it robs characters of—well, it robs them of any sort of dimensionality, and and, and turns them into essentially a steamroller. And I—and and it really bothers me in a film, but. Christopher Lloyd plays it as this sort of great balance of, yes, he cannot be negotiated with, yes, he is unstoppable, but at the same time, we understand his motivations, and we we see enough insight into this character and and what he's about, that he's not a pure steamroller. Gene Roddenberry here is listed as creative consultant. I have no idea how much he was involved. My guess is that at that point, he was probably already starting to develop the genesis for what would be Star Trek The Next Generation, but he is given a credit here. And of course, he's Gene Roddenberry. He's the creator of all this. He is the great bird of the galaxy, as he's known. So he has to get credit. I noticed that one of the associate producers here that Harve Bennett, the producer, has brought on is Ralph Winter. Uh, he will become a much bigger deal in Star Trek IV. In fact, I think he helps write it. So here's an interesting thing that just dawned on me. In Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, when we see the opening credits, it's in a star field and we're moving forward through the stars. In Star Trek 3, it's the opposite. We're moving back. It's like Kirk and crew and the story have sort of withdrawn. They've left Genesis, but also in a more thematic way, this is a pulling back. they've it's like if you touch something that burns you, you withdraw you you know you pull your hand back to your body and that's what this feels like. We're pulling back we've we have we have experienced this terrible death, this terrible loss of Spock, and instead of going out into the universe boldly to explore to boldly go where no one has gone before, where no man has gone before, here we are withdrawing. I've never noticed that before, and you know it's it's not the same starfield he didn't just take the the footage and reverse it because there's what way less of a blue tinge to the stars than there were in Star Trek Two. Uh, so he chose, you know, Nimoy chose this, that he was going to do this, and it makes for an interesting, again, it's, it's what struck me most, it's that the themes are the same, and yet they're flipped. And here's, here's an example. And, of course, directed by Leonard Nimoy. The funny thing is, my understanding is that uh, Nimoy had to beg and plead to direct this movie. No one wanted to give him the chance. It was his first directorial uh, effort. And of course, it was successful, and they came back to him and said, Hey, do you want to do the next one? Uh, so good for him. Of course, we come out of the starfield to see the Enterprise. It is battered, it is beaten, there are battle scars. And we get Kirk's opening log, and you can hear it in his voice just how exhausted he is. USS Enterprise Captain's personal log. With most of our battle damage repaired, we're almost home. Yet, I feel uneasy, and I wonder why. Perhaps it is the emptiness of this vessel. Most of our trainee crew have been reassigned. Lieutenant Savick and my son David are exploring the Genesis planet, which he helped create. And Enterprise feels like a house with all the children gone. More empty even than that. The death of Spock is like an open wound. It seems that I have left the noblest part of myself back there on that newborn planet. Now, it's interesting here that you know one of the first things we, we learn is that the Enterprise is mostly empty. Most of the trainee crew have been reassigned. Uh, the bridge is almost empty. Uh, the tactical station sits... unused. The Spock science station is not filled. Uh, When Chekhov is asked to take the station, he's hesitant about it. Uh, You know, Kirk speaks with Scotty, who says that he'll have the the ship fully automated. They clearly expect to take the ship out again, probably back to Genesis. But there's a recognition that he will not have a full crew, that it may be just a handful of people who will... uh, who will take the ship out, which is interesting, because at this point, you know, he's not thinking of mutiny, he's not th- thinking of stealing the ship, but he clearly expects to get some pushback from Starfleet on using this vessel again. <laughs> as as Kurt, I always laugh at this, even though I shouldn't, because it's grim. Uh, maybe it's because it's grim that I laugh. There's there's the scene where, you know, this this brand new lieutenant asks Kirk, you know, is there going to be a ceremony when we get back? And he's, he's like, it's an honest question for he just asks a simple question. Is there going to be a ceremony? And Kirk just goes all grim on him. And you know, even as a kid, I thought, Jesus, Kirk, dial it down a bit, okay? It's just a question. Sir? I was wondering, are they planning a ceremony when we get in? I mean a reception? A hero's welcome, Sean, is that what you like? Well, God knows I should be. This time we've paid for the party with our dearest blood. And now we're introduced to this this cargo ship, this shitty little thing. Uh, it, it's a really neat design. It's got a very 80s design. I am i don't know why I'm reminded of this really bad B-movie called Space Hunter Adventures in the Forbidden Zone, which included, I think it was Peter Strauss and uh, Michael Ironside and Molly Ringwald. For some reason, the, the design reminds me of that. It, for all I know, it was the same people. It's one of the few times we see civilians in early Star Trek, and here it's like a smuggler's crew. Oh, just noticed a little editing error. Uh, when we see the Klingon female Valkris, who's aboard this vessel, uh, when she approaches you know, behind the, the captain, she's still got this veil on, though we only see her from the shoulders down. And then the very next shot, when she starts speaking, when she starts calling out you know, for the Klingons to reveal themselves, she doesn't have it on. Uh, the only reason I know it's a veil is because I've seen publicity shots of her with it. Now, here we are introduced to the idea of a... Klingon Bird of Prey, and this, this requires some explanation. So up until this point in Star Trek, the term Bird of Prey had only ever been used to refer to a Romulan vessel encountered in the episode Balance of Terror, which actually notably included Mark Leonard as the Romulan commander, and we only ever call him commander. What we'll learn over the course of many decades of Star Trek is that the Romulans, who of course are from Vulcan, they were and I'm not going to get into that, you can look that up, they're worshippers of birds, birds of prey. And so the you know, the bird of prey is a very Romulan thing. So why is it that the Klingons have it? Well, this this movie identifies this Klingon bird of this bird of prey as Klingon. In fact, when later in the film, when Sulu spots it, he says Klingon bird of prey, like it's the most natural thing ever. And moving forward, yeah, Klingons have these ships called birds of prey. And you see that in Star Trek and Star Trek, the Next, you know, the movies in Star Trek The Next Generation and DS9 and, and even in Enterprise and in Voyager, uh, in, in, I don't think in Voyager, but in, uh, in Discovery, they show sort of earlier versions of the Birds of Prey and we just sort of accept it. Apparently, in an earlier version of the script of Star Trek III, there is a scene where Commander Kruge, who we learn very quickly is a renegade, he does not serve in the military, he does not recognize, he does not um, serve the Klingon government, the High Council. Share this with no one. Understood, my lord. We are going to this planet, even as our emissaries negotiate for peace with the Federation. We will act preservation of our race, we will seize the secret of this weapon, the secret of ultimate power. Success, my lord. He's on his own. In an early version of the movie, this is well before it went to film, there is a scene where Kruge and his crew steal a Romulan bird of prey, which would explain Possibly how it is that the Klingons got access to cloaking technology. Though there is a possibility uh, from an episode called "The Enterprise Incident" that uh, the Klingons go- got Romulan cloaking technology as part of a technology swap. Um, Romulans got access to Klingon uh, D7 cruisers, which, by the way, was just because they didn't have the budget to make more Romulan vessels, so they used the Klingon uh, model they had. But whatever, you know, when uh, expediency becomes canon. But you know, the point is, is that. Initially, this was meant to be sort of Romulan technology that falls into the hands of the Klingons, but obviously that uh, that entire scene was eliminated, and if it ain't on the screen, it's not there. It's not like this was filmed and then cut, and it's in the, the novelization. It's not even there. It's kind of a screw-up. I, I think I would have rathered they had kept it as a Romulan bird of prey stolen by the Klingons, because if you look at this thing with its green coloring that's very Romulan, again... The you know the Romulans are worshippers of birds of prey, the Klingons really aren't. Like there there's no there's no Klingon. How would I put this? There's in all the decades of Star Trek, there's never been a suggestion that Klingons worship birds. If anything, uh, they they tend to worship sort of stalwart, tough ground animals. Um, but they're really not. Well, they're not really animal worshipers at all. They're not. They, they don't. They don't worship a totem. They worship uh, like their gods are are dead. I prefer Klingon beliefs. Our gods are dead. Ancient Klingon warriors slew them a millennia ago. They were more trouble than they were worth. All their Klingon religion, uh, religious imagi- imagery is like Feklar, who's kind of drags you to the to the land of the dishonored dead. He's just a Klingon with some uh, facial problems. Ah, but I am. I am the guardian of great Or where the dishonored go when they die no birds so it's it's a little bit clumsy and i guess what happens when you you iterate on a script and in the end you come out with something that you started at step a went to b c d e and by the time you got to step z and you, you you're yelling action on a set somewhere it all seems very natural but you know someone like me looking from the outside sort of thinks well okay, maybe not. I mean, like We don't see A through Z, we just see Z, and we knew what came before A, and we're saying, and we're saying well, what, what's up with that? A little bit of clumsiness. I don't blame Nimoy for this. This would actually be Harv Bennett's fault. He wrote and produced this film. I suppose another way to think about it is that, you know, this bird of prey is in fact a Romulan vessel or a Romulan design that the Klingons have started to use, because one thing we start to see about the Klingons is that they're kind of a stunted culture, uh, from the time the sort of the warrior casts took over, which is you know, about 100 years before the time of Star Trek, so the time of Enterprise, the sort of the warriors take over and it sort of stunts Klingon development as a culture, technologically, socially, and all that sort of stuff. And so, you know, we see this bird of prey design for, you know, 100 years. And maybe it's simply that the Klingons got this from the Romulans and never really iterated on it beyond improving the weapons and that sort of thing. But it's what they have, so it's what they go with, because they're all too busy being warriors to be engineers. Uh, you know, my first degree was ancient and medieval history, and one of the running jokes was that the Romans didn't know how to build a proper boat to cross the Mediterranean until a... Uh, a a foreign wreck washed up on their shore and they replicated the engineering, which I'm sure is not true, but you know, the Romans are known for sort of borrowing from others. The difference is they iterated on technology. They were the best engineers of the ancient world for a long time. The Klingons here, not so much. They they do what they need to fight their battles and you know they have a Romulan design. They're using it. Great, carry on. Uh, we see the bridge of this... Uh, this ship, and it, it's interesting because they, they screwed up between Star Trek 3 and 4. They used a very different bridge design. Uh, in, in Star Trek 3, Lord Cruge is on a captain's chair and sort of raised up on a platform, and sort of surrounding him in a half circle are all of his officers at their controls. He has beside him this, I don't know, this scary ass looking pet. <laughs> I don't know what the hell it is. It's not a Targ, which is a, a, a Klingon. It's almost like a wild boar. This is a much scarier thing. Uh, we're, get, you know, we're meant to get the impression that this guy is, you know, he's pretty badass uh, because he's got this scary pet and it works pretty well. This is where we first get the understanding that, that Commander Kruge or Lord Cruge is, I'll say Lord Krooge because that's what everyone refers to him as my lord. Uh, just how ruthless he is, because Valcres aboard this vessel you know, transmits the information, which we see involves Genesis, most notably the Genesis report. Essentially, it's the same one from Star Trek II, except it's Kirk who gives it instead of uh, uh, Carol Marcus. I guess the actress wasn't interested in being part of the new one. Maybe she didn't want to re-record it. Who the heck knows? But she says, Valcres says, you'll find it useful, and and Krug says. Uh, You've seen it. She says yes. He says, "Well, that's unfortunate." Good, you know. And she says, "Well, goodbye, my love." And he destroys the vessel. I'm saying this to you instead of playing the clip because they say it in Klingon. It's one thing I really appreciate about this movie is that they they show you these people don't speak English. They speak Klingon. Like they go back and forth, but when they speak among themselves at first, it's it's in Klingon. Later on, just so we don't, you know, the audiences have to follow a lot of subtitles, they go back to English. But it's clear these people speak a different language. Now, the language was developed by Mark Okrind, and he's done a wonderful job. You can actually learn to speak Klingon. You should absolutely go onto YouTube. Uh, Someone did all of Hamlet in Klingon. You can at least find the to be or not to be speech Uh, in Klingon. It's, you know, it's reasonably well acted, but it's kind of neat. There's an effort in Star Trek Three to develop what you know the beginning of a a culture for these people that they're not just a stand-in for the Russians like they were in the original series, you know. And but we're also seeing here just how cutthroat Lord Krueger is. That you know his this spy Valkyrs who clearly he is involved with romantically. She knows too much. She cannot be allowed to live. And he is quite prepared to kill her along with the two humans, or however many humans. I don't think we. I think we only see two two humans aboard this smuggling vessel. Because, well, too bad. It's a very Cold War movie feel to it that you know you you have to kill your spies, and that's really what's going on here. So I'm going to get a little nerd into the weeds and a little nerdy here. Uh, we hear over the course of this movie, we're going to hear the same word, kapla pronounced three different ways. Kapla means success. It's what you wish another Klingon you know, we would say good luck. They say kapla. Now in The Next Generation, that's how they say it. Kapla. Kapla. Um, or Kapla. And Valkris just sort of says it. Kapla. She's much more chill about it. When Krug says it, he says it. Kapla. I know this is just actors pronouncing it differently, but I know Mark Okrand was involved in this, and I wonder, was he choosing different dialects? Is Lord Kruge, you know, from a, a different, like, is he from the southern continent, so to speak, and, and Valkyrs is from the eastern continent? Like, I don't know. Uh, but it's kind of neat that you're seeing that people pronounce things differently. And I'm often reminded of my very favorite podcast, The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, where the Novella brothers, who live in New England, were talking with one of the co-hosts, Cara Santa Maria, who's uh, from Texas, and they're talking about how they pronounce insurance. They say insurance. I say insurance. She says insurance. It's just a you know, it's just kind of neat. It's a it's a it's a nice little detail that most people aren't going to notice, except that it makes these people seem more real. And it's not just two humans in the vessel. There's someone of a indeterminate alien race who gets destroyed along with the two humans aboard the. Uh, the vessel. So yay, multiracial crew dead. There is a little bit of humor in this otherwise grim film when uh, crew is leaving the bridge and his pet starts growling and he turns around and he points at one of the officers and he says, "Feed him." And the other guy says, "You know, yes, my lord." And then he he just sort of looks at this thing like, "Oh God," because this creature is just scary ass looking. I mean, it's a bit of puppetry, but it's still pretty scary. And like even the Klingons look in that going, "Oh." Okay, it's just it's a funny little moment. It's it's done entirely with the look of this you know this this actor who just sort of you know, it's all about his eyes and his facial expression. It's quite well done. And of course, then we go back to the Enterprise where we see the Enterprise approaching space dock. Space dock has got to be my single favorite piece of space architecture anywhere in any movie. Uh, it's just this big mushroom-looking thing where you know the the doors open and entire starships sit in this space dock like that's enormous try to imagine okay, an aircraft carrier sailing in indoors into a place where it could be one of a dozen ships it's very, very cool because any other time we'd seen the Enterprise uh, in Star Trek 1 and 2, of course it was the same shot they cheated, so we'll just say in Star Trek 1 and 2 uh, they show the Enterprise and it's sort of in a dock, which is really just sort of the skeleton around the ship where they can mount lights and equipment and that sort of thing but this is it's effectively a building in space and I can only imagine how big it is uh, it's it's pretty impressive to look at it's again one of my favorite pieces of, of science fiction architecture I think I've ever seen. It's so impressive to see the inside of this enormous this enormous structure and then off in the distance we see the Excelsior, which of course we will one will one day realize. Uh, Hikaru Sulu becomes captain, and that's his vessel, and the Enterprise B is a modified Excelsior-class vessel. And then we can see off on the left, I'm just noticing this for the first time because I've never freeze-framed this before, there is another ship. We can only sort of barely see it. My guessing is it was an unfinished model uh, because it's unlit, and, and it's just sort of sitting there. But this is an enormous, enormous structure, and the Enterprise just sort of sidles up and... You know, it pulls up in front of sort of a central structure, you know, and there's got to be one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. There's got to be 20, 30 stories to this central structure that the that the ship is, you know, going to sort of sort of sidle up against. And at the same time, it's you know that's only a tiny, tiny part of this entire station. It's it's really quite incredible, and ILM Industrial Lights and Magic did a fantastic job of showing this, I mean, when I pause it the the Excelsior looks a little bit like they sort of drew it in and they superimposed it uh, because there's a little like the 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 black line around the edge of the nacelles is a little much oh hey look they inserted that into the shot. But when you consider this this was done purely with models, this all practical work, they did a darn good job of it. And that's the one thing I would suggest that even by today's standards with all this amazing CGI work we can do, I would suggest that the Star Trek two, II, three, and four effects, uh, and, and Star Trek six as well. I would argue they they hold up really well, and that's a testament to Industrial Lights and Magic and how good they are. You'll notice, uh, or that we, of course you can't you can't see the film, but presumably you've seen it. Uh, I noticed that Excelsior its its hull registry is not NCC two thousand; it's NX two thousand because it's a naval experiment. Which of course, when we see the original Enterprise in like Star Trek Enterprise it's NX whatever it was NX01 or NX02 i think it's NX01 because it's the you know the NX Enterprise it was the the first warp 5 capable vessel that a pre-federation starfleet sort of an earth entity had created and so they've kept on with with the nomenclature that instead of NCC 1701 that's the Enterprise it's NX and they talk about the ship with transwarp drive the funny thing is is that it becomes kind of a running joke among Star Trek writers mostly for the fans' sake, I think, that transwarp drive is something they don't ever really... It's not something they ever really figure out. They talk about transwarp in in Voyager, and it never goes anywhere. Um, At the end of Voyager, we learn that transwarp conduits are being used by the Borg, but transwarp drive never really works. And so the the Excelsior, the great experiment, will be a failure. And clearly, Scotty thinks that transwarp drive is bullshit. Would you look at that? My friends, the great experiment, the Excelsior, ready for trial runs. She's supposed to have transwarp drive, aye, and if my grandmother had wheels, she'd be a wagon. Come, come Mr. Scott, young minds, fresh ideas, be torn. As the enterprise starts to sort of sidle up to its dock, there's a lounge. And, you know, people, and it's clear they sort of grabbed whatever costumes they could find around Paramount, and some of them are obviously from Star Trek the motion picture. They, they're sort of looking at the, the damage to the side of the secondary hall. And one of the people we see is a commander who is never given a name, but I happen to know it's Grace Lee Whitney. This is Yeoman Janice Rand, now a commander, looks at the ship, and she's horrified by what she sees, and she sort of Gives the smirk and shakes her head like ah, oh, the Enterprise up to its old tricks again, getting into trouble. Uh, it's a nice nod because the last time we saw Rand was she was the she was a transporter. She was working in the transporter room in Star Trek: The Motion Picture. Again, it's a quick roll. It was probably one day of filming. In fact, I'm sure it was only one day of filming. It's like two seconds of shot. But it's nice that they gave her the spot. That Trekkies get to see the continuation of these characters, even if you know Rand is obviously intended for some other duty. She's not She's not on the Enterprise. In fact, what we know later on from Star Trek Voyager is she winds up assigned to the Excelsior. So this is where we're told that there's an energy reading in Spock quarters which Chekhov himself had sealed. Uh, security reports that the door has been forced and, you know, obviously this is the beginning of a mystery. What follows is probably one of the more powerful scenes from any of the Star Trek films where Kirk enters Spock's quarters. The doors have literally been forced open, like they've been broken off their tracks. And you hear Spock's voice Why did you leave me on Genesis? Why did you leave me behind? And Kirk, not knowing who it is, grabs this person who's in shadows. And when you pull him into the light, we see it. it's McCoy. And no longer speaking like Spock, he says, You know, take me home. Uh, climb the the steps of Mount Silea, which is on Vulcan. And like, you could see it in his eyes. He's he's clearly out of his mind. He's, he's experiencing a manic episode. And of course, no one has any idea why. DeForest Kelly was a character actor and people often sneered him the way they sneer at Shatner, who, you know, they say, oh, he overacted. But I disagree. I don't think he's overacting. And I don't think DeForest Kelly is overacting here. Here he's experiencing some pretty severe mental trauma. And we don't know why. We have not had the opportunity to understand how McCoy is processing Spock's death. Really, the only one we understand, you know, whose reaction we understand is Kirk. Which, granted, we're talking about, you know, 10 minutes of of scenes at the end of Star Trek 2 and the first 10 minutes or so of Star Trek 3. But we have no idea how McCoy, who was very close to Spock as well, we don't know how he's processing it. And it seems that maybe this is part of it, that maybe he's losing his mind. So here's another error. Uh, the Starfleet commander, uh, Admiral Morrow, comes to, to talk to the crew, and he and he says that, uh, you know, he goes to Scotty, and he says, you know, report to the Excelsior as captain of engineering. So, you know, that'll be now three of the main characters who have been promoted, who have been captain, you know, Kirk, Spock, and now Scotty. Uh, and he says, well, you know, with all due respect, I'd rather oversee the refit of Enterprise. And he says, well, there's going to be no refit. And... Kirk says, well, we wanted to bring him back to, Gen- to Genesis. He says, no, no, the, the Enterprise is over. It's 20 years old. That's an error. It's been 15 years. We learned this in, in Star Trek 2 It's been 15 years since the first season of Star Trek, the original series. Star Trek, the original series. Let's do the math. So it's been 15 years since, the, since season one. Season one was one year into a five-year mission. The Enterprise at that point was at least 10 years old because it was under... It was commanded under Captain Pike. So the Enterprise is, in fact, uh, 26 years old at least, probably closer to 30. So it's not 20 years old. Uh, I don't really... I guess I don't really blame him. It's a small point. I'm probably the only one who's ever going to complain about it. But at the same time, it's one of those things, it's just carelessness. Harve Bennett had made the point of watching all the original series episodes. He wrote the script for Star Trek II. When he dropped the 15-year figure, surely he understood that the Enterprise was much, you know, was much older. It's one of those things he probably said, ah, who's going to care? Uh, I think fans, whether they're Trekkies or Star Wars geeks or, or Hoovians or whatever, we tend to look at little errors like this and we tend to go screaming, oh my God, they got it wrong, how could they possibly? But you got to understand that these are movie-making people, these are television people who... They're making this and they're moving on to the next thing. This is just part of their job. It's not their sort of their lifelong obsession the way Star Trek is with me or Star Wars would be for someone else. And so I I think I have had to learn and, you know, I'm 43 now. I've had to learn over the course of years to chill out and recognize there are going to be problems. There's going to be inconsistencies. There's only so much you can do. And, you know, that's just the way it is. It's interesting that we discover that uh, the Genesis project has, has created this enormous controversy because, you know, obviously it was fairly top secret, you know, Admiral, you know, Admiral Kirk knew about it. Spock and McCoy did not. You, you'd figure that Spock would being a science officer, I guess, because he's a train, you know, he's a, he's a commander of trainees at Starfleet Academy. Why would he? But the point is this is kind of a top secret ish thing. And now that everyone knows about it, it's, it's, it's a big deal because, like, this is the ultimate doomsday weapon. You imagine what would happen if you dropped the Genesis device on, say, Earth. It's one of those things you sort of wonder, what did, what the hell did Starfleet think they were, was going to happen when they authorized this project, when they offered to fund it? So at this point, Krooge and two of his officers, including Maltz, uh, played by John La Roquette, you know, the, the three of them view the Genesis data. And, you know, when Maltz suggests, hey, this is kind of neat, they can make planets... Crude is not impressed and sends him back to his sends him back to work. Clearly, that's not what he's interested in. He's interested in the Genesis device as a doomsday weapon, which the other guy is clearly into. So you know we're starting to figure out Crude is a pretty you know he's a pretty bloodthirsty guy. So of course here's where we, we learn that Crude is not Krug is not serving the High Council. He's saying, you know, even as our, our emissaries negotiate for peace, we will seize this for the preservation of our race. So Kruge is, you know, he's, obviously he believes in the Klingon people, but he is not interested in, in listening to what the High Council has to say. And then immediately we go to the Genesis planet where we're introduced to the Grissom, which is, I can't remember what type of vessel it is. It's a cool little science-looking vessel, and it's... It's a nice bit of camera work. they give you a star date, not that that means anything, but they show you you know the beautiful planet of genesis, this this lush green environment. I really like that as David Marcus and SAVIC start scanning the planet, they take the time to go, you know sector one is this, you know, here's the vegetation. Here's the the temperature, and they go through a bunch of these and it's very scientific. It's not the sort of techno babble that you'd, you'd see later in Star Trek The Next Generation. There's nothing complex here. But it's just that the movie takes the time to show the science. Here they take the time to say, here's the science. We've encountered a problem. Let's move forward and here's the way we want to do it. And of course, this problem they've encountered is that where they have found Captain Spock's burial tube, there's now uh, an animal life form where there shouldn't be. Now, this leads to one of the most interesting scenes uh, in the movie. It's the one I have a really cool story about, though it's not my story. It's Mark Leonard's. So the, the next, this scene is back in Kirk's apartment, that really gorgeous uh, bayside apartment we saw from Star Trek II, where uh, Sulu Chekhov and Uhura and Kirk are sort of, you know, they're they they give it, they're having a drink, you know, toast to absent friends. You know, they ask what was about the Enterprise. It's going to be Commission, We won't, We have no idea if we're getting another ship. The doorbell rings and Kirk assumes it'll be Scotty, but in fact it's Ambassador Sarek. And Sarek is just blunt as possible. I would speak to you alone. Everyone else leaves, and it's just the two of them. I wanted to say something about Mark Leonard's performance. We'd only ever seen a handful of Vulcans before. We'd seen the second season episode, "A Mock Time, where Spock goes back to Vulcan. We did not meet his father or his mother there, because his mother is human. But, you know, these were Vulcans in the midst of a, a pretty serious ritual. They were not quite behaving the way you would expect Vulcans to. Uh, and then the next time, which is a few episodes later, we see Journey to Babel were introduced to uh, Commander Sarek. Sarek is very blunt and to the point. He doesn't have a lot of time for human emotion or human niceties, which is interesting because, of course, he's an ambassador. He married a human. But he's sort of, he's very blunt, and it's clear here that he is upset that Sarek, the Vulcan, who has learned, like all good Vulcans, to suppress his emotions, he's quite upset with Kirk. Ambassador, I would have come to Vulcan to express my deepest sympathies. Spare me your human platitudes, Kirk. I have been to your government. I've seen the Genesis information and your own report. Then you know how bravely your son met his death. Why did you leave him on Genesis? And it's really well performed. Now, there's a scene where you know he, he mind melds with Kirk and he goes over the last moments of you know, Spock's life. And it's a scene where they sit in front of the fireplace and Mark Leonard, you know, Sarek has his hands on Kirk's face. It's a very moving scene where Kirk is forced to relive the pain of the death of his best friend. You spoke of your friendship. Yes. Ask you not to grieve. Yes. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, or the one. Spock, I have been and always shall be your friend. Live long and prosper. No. I had a chance to meet Mark Leonard. We In Calgary, we used to have the Star Trek convention called, well, quite cleverly, STCon. And the very last year it was on, which I think was, I'm going to say, 95, 96, somewhere in there, we had him as a guest. And first off, I want to say Mark Leonard was a class act. He showed up, and first we thought, what kind of guy is this? He demanded a, a bigger room. He kept making calls back to his people in New York. And we thought, wow, he's kind of a snob. It turned out he was speaking with his doctors. He passed away a few months later. Uh, so I, I, feel, I kind of feel bad at the time we sort of sneered at him you know he went to lunch with us he he was very quiet he didn't say a lot but when this guy did you know as, as ill as he was because again he was a few months from death when he sat down to sign uh, autographs he was it was only supposed to be an hour long autograph signing session remember this is not like the major conventions you see today this is back in the day when conventions were like we didn't want the press's attention. We had actually had told them if you're going to just write a uh, an article about all these silly people in costume, we're not going to talk to you. This is not Comic-Con or the Calgary Comic and Entertainment Expo. This is a very different time. So this guy was only supposed to do a 1-hour session. We figured that would be more than enough to meet, you know, the 200 people who attended the convention, but 3 hours Later, this guy was still sitting there and signing everything and talking to everyone. You know, this, this young boy came up to Mark Leonard and, and, and this is the mid nineties. So this boy was, you know, he could not possibly have been more than a couple of years old when Star Trek three came out as an example. And he had with him a toy for planet of the apes. There had been a, a short lived planet of the apes television series in which Mark Leonard had played and he said, well, I think this is your character. Would you sign it? And Mark Leonard could have said, yeah, whatever, kid. Give it to me and signed it with a Sharpie and moved on. But he took a moment to talk to this kid. He took a moment to, to listen to people explain what his performance as Sarek had meant to them. And, you know, I've often said I don't care about signatures, I don't care about autographs. After all, you're just the next guy in line. He signs it, you know, to my best friend, whatever. Well, You're not his best friend. He just, he signed 50 of those, right? But Mark Leonard took the time to speak to every one of these fans, to listen to what they had to say, to thank them for their expressions of gratitude. And I remember how moving it was because I was chief of security for the convention. So I, I was right there, you know, looking after him and crowd control and that sort of stuff and everyone was so respectful of him, and 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 you know you are only supposed to bring up two things to sign, but some guys brought three or four, and he signed them all. Like the, Mr. Leonard was a class act, and you know he sort of he passed away and he disappeared from the scene, only really being remembered for his Star Trek roles, despite the fact that he'd been acting for so long. So maybe this is a chance to, you know, to explain that here's a guy who understood that. A bit part he would played in a series, you know, decades previous, and a few scenes from a movie that at this point were a decade past. They meant a lot to Trekkies who had who'd come just to express that, and he took the time to listen to them all, and he, I find that very moving. But he told a story when he did his panel about the filming of this scene where he's he and Shatner are sit, seated in front of the fire, and and Sarek is forcing Kirk to relive this, and. Sarek has his hands on Kirk's face because it's you know it's a mind meld, and they were so into it because they did it as one long scene. And Sarek was uh, Mark Leonard was so into it that at one point Nimoy yells "Cut!" and he couldn't understand why. And and Nimoy showed him sort of the tapes. He was leaning so heavily into Kirk, and he was so into it that he had pulled Shatner's. Uh, he was pulling Shatner's eyelid way down and it looked like he was giving him an eye exam. <laughs> so they had to reshoot the scene. And it's just, you know, I'm sure he had told that story a thousand times across many conventions. Uh, you know, that's the way it works. They, you know, they, they have X amount of stories. But it was just really funny that this super intense, very emotional, very moving scene had to be redone. Because Mark Leonard was so deep into it and Shatner was so into this scene that he had his eye pulled all the way open like he was looking for a, you know, like a... Looking for an eyelash under the eyelid, it was kind of funny. But of course, you know, with this scene, we learn that there's a disconnect between what Sarek expects and what actually happened. Is that, you know, he, you know, he says, well, you know, Spock asked you to return him. Said, well, no, he couldn't. He said, well, you know, he, you know, he he asked you to return him to Vulcan, and Kirk says, well, we were separated. He didn't say anything like that. And in fact, they even. Go and they, they watch like they go onto the Enterprise and they look at the the logs and see the death of Spock as recorded by you know Enterprise security cameras, and then they sort of go back and they realize oh my God it's McCoy, and this is something that I remember I said there was an Easter egg in Star Trek 2 that when you know when Spock tries to enter the dilithium chamber, uh, McCoy tries to stop him and Spock gives him the neck pinch and then puts his hand up to McCoy's face and says remember. And what we've learned is that Spock has given McCoy his Katra, something that we'll only ever really learn again um, in Star Trek Discovery when we re-examine Sarek, who, by the way, is played excellently by this guy named James Frayne. Frayne. And he does Sarek immensely, and he talks a lot about sort of the Katra. And the idea is the Katra is... You know, his living essence, his soul, really what it is is sort of a copy of him. He imprints, he's imprinting large portions of, of you know, when a, when, a, when a Vulcan gives you his katra, he's imprinting large portions of who he is onto you. So then you can presumably pass that on to his family. It's not like a transfer of consciousness, it's a facsimile, which we'll learn in Star Trek IV, Spock reconstituted is only a shadow of his former self, and he's a very different man after that, because Spock has in fact died, and what we're seeing is, you know, Spock's body has been resurrected by Genesis, and, 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 and Spock's mind has been brought back through the Katra, which passed from Spock to McCoy and back to rejuvenated Spock, it's sort of a cheap copy, it's only part of the information. You know, Sark clearly is—he's aware this was a possibility, and even though the idea of a Katra is kind of—I won't say mythical—it's—it's it's not steeped in logical science the way you would expect it to be on Vulcan. It's clearly something Sarek considers important, and knowing that McCoy has it, well, the idea is let's bring him back to to Vulcan and bring the body of Spock too. And of course there's no understanding that at this point Spock is alive, which we will we'll learn Genesis has regenerated him. but clearly it is important for Sarek and Sarek's family because we of course we already know that fa- uh, Spock's family, Sarek's family is very important. We learned this in a mock time, the original series episode that clearly it is important that not just that the Katra come home to the family, but the body as well. So, of course, now they're aboard the Enterprise and they're looking through the the records. And, you know, we're half an hour into this film. And up until now, a lot of the films, especially the, very much the Kirk side of things, not so much the Kruse side of things or the, the David Marcus side of things, the Kirk side of things, it's all been about this one event from a previous film. And something, it's like a closed room mystery. It appeals to me, this idea that they're examining this one item and you keep looking Again and again, and you look for other, you look for you know for smaller details, you know hints you missed the first time. Keep going over and over again. I find that fascinating. It's it it, it makes the beginning of Star Trek three almost a mystery. And so of course Kirk swears that he'll bring both Spock and McCoy to Mount Slaya. Now remember, again at this point he has no, he has no expectation that Spock is anything more than a corpse, and yet he's willing to do whatever it takes to just to see that that Spock is properly honored. And then of course we're back to Genesis where Marcus and Savick beam down. Now this is the first hint that something's gone wrong with Genesis. David and Savick find Spock's burial tube and then there are these nasty little creatures around it they are about the size of your hand. There are your life forms. And Savic figures, well, they're, you know, they're microbes that were on the surface of the torpedo when it was launched from Enterprise, and in the space of, you know, a few weeks or days or however long it's been, I'm going to guess it's been a couple of weeks. The uh, the microbes have evolved extremely rapidly, like billions of years of evolution in the space of a few weeks. So it's our first hint that something is wrong here. And of course, inside the tube is Spock's burial robe, but no Spock. You know, there's a sudden. There's an earthquake and a and a windstorm and we hear screaming in the background, which of course we or screaming off in the distance, which of course we know is Spock. And now we're back in in Starfleet headquarters where Admiral Morrow is talking with Kirk about. You know, Kirk wants to go back to Genesis, and he explains why, and, and Moro says, no, I don't believe in this, this Vulcan mysticism. And this scene, I have seen many more times in the film. When I was a kid, uh, back in the days when when you know the movies were shown on Super Channel, there was uh, one station, I think it was station 13 or 14 or something like that, and it was sort of like a preview station that Rogers put out where they would show nothing but trailers for movies it was sort of like a 24-hour advertisement for you know hey you can see these movies if you subscribe to super channel and for uh like they would show over the course of an hour a scene from the movie and like a trailer and this was the scene that they showed so i've seen this debate give me back the enterprise with scotty's help i can no jim the enterprise would never stand the pounding and you know it i'll find a ship i'll hire a ship out of the question my friend it's back and forth between the two of them I you know I've seen it dozens more times than I ever saw the film. Then we get to see McCoy in some sort of dive bar. Uh, clearly, this is somewhere in San Francisco. Half the people in there are Starfleet. You know, it's clearly not meant to be the you know the nicest place in the world. It's, like I said, it's a it's it's practically a biker bar. There, uh, there's one guy on the table with trebles. Ha ha. Two people playing a video game, which is like this three D. Dog fighting with biplanes sort of thing I guess in the 1980s that seemed like high tech and McCoy is trying to hire a ship and it's there's a really great bit of um, repartee back and forth between uh, McCoy and this smuggler who he's hired somewhere in the Mutara sector oh Mutara restricted take permits, many money or there aren't going to be any damn permits How can you get a permit to do a damn illegal thing? Look, price you name, money I got. Place you name, money I name, otherwise bargain no. All right, damn it. It's Genesis. The name of the place we're going is Genesis. Genesis? Yes, Genesis. How can you be deaf with ears like that? You know, at this point, I love that Federation Security interrupts and. McCoy tries to give him the Vulcan nerve pinch because, of course, he's got a lot of Spock in him, and he can't. And the the <laughs> sort of looks at him and says, "Okay, we're done now." We sort of quickly switch back to Genesis, where we see that uh, David and Savic are tracking footprints. They're in a desert. There's cacti everywhere, but they're covered in snow. So clearly, things are going wrong on this on this planet. And then we go back to a Federation prison where. Kirk is visiting McCoy, and he says, you know, we're sending him to the Federation Funny Farm in the morning, so make it quick. And then uh, another bit of humor, you know, McCoy is sort of resting in bed, and Kirk comes up to him and says, how many fingers am I holding up? And he gives the Vulcan uh, salute, and McCoy says, that's not very damn funny. But yeah, it actually is pretty funny. So he, you know... A few seconds later, Sulu comes in, and there's sort of a back and forth with the security guards. Now, George Takai is not a particularly tall guy, and this big security guard sort of stands up and says, "Don't get smart, tiny." And then, you know, Kirk explains to McCoy what's going on, and when those two come out of a McCoy's cell, you know, Takai's kicking the other guy's ass. You know, the one sort of the one of the larger points of humor in this film is that. Members of the Enterprise crew are constantly being underestimated. They're they're acting crazy. They're too small. Uh, they're over the hill. You know this great scene between Uhura and quote unquote Mister Adventure, which by the way is how that actor is referred to in the in, in the credits as Mister Adventure. This this young lieutenant who uh, who's bored by working at a transporter station. Uh, it's a running joke that everyone keeps underestimating Kirk and his crew, despite the fact that they're over the hill, so to speak. Good evening, Commander. Is everything ready? Step into my parlor, gentlemen. That's Admiral Kirk, my God. Very good for you, Lieutenant. But it's damn irregular. No destination orders, no encoded IDs. All true. Well, what are we going to do about it? I'm not going to do anything about it. You're going to sit in the closet. And now we have a jailbreak. Uh, despite the fact that there's you know there's not a ton of violence in this you know a guy gets beaten up but someone else gets locked in a closet. the theft of the enterprise is really exciting because first off James Horner's music does a really good job of it. but also as we recognize, these are people you know these are experts in their field who are manipulating a system they've they've lived their whole adult lives in you know Starfleet and everyone's in on it and it's really cool because there's been very little hint up until this point, what it is they're planning, and so suddenly we get to sort of see it play out. It's very cool, you know. And the encounter between Captain Styles of the Excelsior and Scott is another example of that. That this bright new ship and this arrogant new captain, assuming that you know the Enterprise is about to fall by the you know the wayside of history, and you know Scotty knows different. One thing I should say is that this the transporter scene. With Uhura, is only one of a few scenes she has. She is criminally underused in this movie. I really wish they had taken her along to Genesis. Nichelle Nichols is a good actress. She has always played Uhura very well. And she's grossly misused. Now, maybe that's because they decided, you know, they did, maybe they just didn't want to use her. Maybe Harve Bennett didn't care. Uh, maybe Nichelle Nichols wasn't available. Who the heck knows? But I would really love to have seen more of her in the film. And of course, now they're aboard the Enterprise. And there's this clip. As promised, she's all yours, sir. All systems automated and ready. A chimpanzee and two trainees could run. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Scott. I'll try not to take that personally. My friends, I can't ask you to go any further. Dr. McCoy and I have to do this. The rest of you do not. Admiral, we're losing precious time. What course, please, Admiral? Mr. Scott? I'd be grateful, Admiral, if you'd give the word. Gentlemen. May the wind be at our backs. Stations, please. This is the film. Right here. This is the film. This is why I love this. This is about the personal loyalty of friends. Uhura's gonna go to jail for you know holding a man at gunpoint. Sulu, even if he didn't go along on this. He's already going to jail for assaulting uh, Federation personnel and assisting in a breakout. Chekhov and you know is going to jail for assisting in the hijacking of a vessel. Uh, Scotty is going to jail for sabotaging the Excelsior. And despite all of this, they're in for a penny, they're in for a pound, and they don't care because it's not about a skirt. We might as well go ahead. It's about what is it going to take to make sure that our family member, that Spock is laid to rest remember they're going there to find a body they're not going there to find a live spock and yet they're willing to ruin their careers to spend you know a lifetime in jail to do this and as much as i love star trek for its it, it, the philosophy of the federation as much as you know it helped make me the progressively minded person that i am the fact is what most makes me love star trek is the way this family is just that it's a family. These are people who would live and die for each other, whose years of service together matter, and they're willing to give up a lot in order to maintain that family. And, and this scene is is the perfect exemplar of that. And there's this great scene where they're sort of backing the Enterprise out towards space doors, like at one point McCoy says, "Like you just gonna walk through them?" And it's like, "You know, calm yourself, Doctor." But in the meantime, there is a little bit of panic because. Scotty's having trouble overriding the security for the doors, and of course at the last minute they are able to open the doors, the Enterprise escapes, but not, not before um, Excelsior gets on its way, and you know, even Stiles says, you know, he speaks to Kirk, and says, you know, you'll never sit in the captain's chair again, and Kirk's response is, and warp speed, and so off he goes. And then the there's this, you know, this big setup where the, you know, the Excelsior is gonna go to warp, and this happens. Prepare for warp speed, standby, transwarp drive. transwar at your command sir level. execute Back to Genesis and we're in the midst of a, a blizzard, and this is where Savik and David come across a child Spock who cannot speak, who's stuck in the snow, and this is where you know David realizes that Genesis has rejuvenated Spock's body. And, you know, Savick tries to speak to him in Vulcan, but he just sort of stares at at her because of course, he doesn't speak the language. He's he's operating on pure instinct. There's no education. I mean, he's just sort of been grown. Imagine a clone just coming out of a out of a vat. And of course, at this point, Kruge in his in his uh, bird of prey shows up. He orders his gunner to destroy the Grissom's engines. He winds up blowing up the ship. Kruge kills him, and then discovers, hey, there are people below. So now we have two or three storylines converging. And of course, now we see that Kruge and two of his people are on the planet. This is where we start to understand. It's time for total truth between us. This planet is not what you intended or hoped for, is it? Not exactly. Why? I used protomatter in the Genesis Matrix. Protomatter? An unstable substance which every ethical scientist in the galaxy has denounced as dangerously unpredictable. But it was the only way to solve certain problems. So, like your father, you changed the rules. If I hadn't, it might have been years or never. In Star Trek, in the Star Trek Two episode, I talked a lot about this idea of, of mistrust between the military and scientists, and the fact that in the sixties and seventies, there have been a lot of protests, especially in, in, in the states, about the fact that something like half the world's scientists were somehow wrapped up in military research. And that Genesis had that feeling of, you know, the the tension between the military and scientists. And now we're discovering, of course, that, you know, as high-minded as David is, he himself has been infected, influenced. I'm not sure what term you'd use. He's been influenced, let's say, by... The idea that sometimes you have to take incredible risks in order to make a jump in science, but he's done so at this great risk. He's been using this thing called proto matter, which they, they never really explain what it is. And obviously it's, it, it has cost him everything because Genesis is a failed experiment, as we're going to see. And Savick is there to call him on it. The screw-up here is further exemplified by the next scene with Kruge. When they approach the, uh, the burial tube, the photon torpedo casing, it's only been a few hours since... Uh, David and Savick were there, and those tiny little hand-sized whatevers are now these massive, scary-ass-looking worms, oh, God. Oh. which are like pythons, and they try to kill the Klingons. I mean, they they crush it, but they're big and they're nasty, and you can only imagine what they would have been like in a few hours. So, it's not that Genesis has made you know turned them into monsters. It has allowed billions of years of evolution over the course of days or weeks. And then we get to see this gorgeous sunset on the Genesis planet. Now, the interesting thing is that once the the sun sets, everything is bathed in this sort of deep blue light. Well, here's the thing. The planet Genesis has no moon. Remember, this wasn't uh, a planet with a moon that was then converted. This was the Mutara Nebula, and, you know, the, uh, the Reliant exploding with the Genesis device on board, gathering the material of the nebula together to create a planet, which doesn't really work, but whatever, let's just run with it. So there's no moon, which means there should be no reflection, which means these guys should live in the dark. But, you know, whatever, movie magic, they've given this everything this beautiful, bathed in this beautiful light blue uh, hue. And it, it creates a very different world than the chaotic brightly lit tropics and arctic zones we've seen so far and of course it's pointed out here that the the planet is aging in surges and that spock is attached to it now this sort of this silly idea this sort of silly science idea that you know that a, a planet will sort of explode and you know that's how it ends that's not how planets end that's how stars end you know planets may you know, their atmosphere may be sheared off or their atmosphere, you know, may become poisonous because of volcanic activity, but they don't explode. But whatever. The idea is the pro- proto matter has created an unstable planet. And thankfully, uh, Spock isn't going to explode. He's just going to grow old. Conveniently, by the time they get him off the planet, he'll be the exact age of Leonard Nimoy. But nonetheless, it creates a sense of urgency because. David has said it could be days, it could be hours. And, of course, they have no idea what's going on. They know the, Grissom is, uh, the USS Grissom is gone, and they know that whatever attacked them is coming for them. But they have hours to get off this planet. So we've added a sense, we've added, a, you know, the theoretical red-digit clock counting down. But this is also where we see that Harv Bennett did his homework, because Savick says this will be hardest on Spock, because soon he will enter Ponfar. Now, this is from a mock time. This is a second-season episode where we learn that Vulcan males only need to mate once every seven years, which may seem silly, but, you know, you think about cicadas, they only come out of hibernation, I think it's once every four years or every seven years. There are plenty of animals out there, plenty of life forms out there that, that live on a weird cycle, not a sort of the constantly alive cycle that we do. I mean, hey, think of bears, they hibernate. Uh, so the idea that the Vulcan species, and th- therefore it would be the same with Romulans, that they only need to mate once every seven years, it you know it kind of makes sense, and they call it Ponfar. And you know, Vulcans become very violent and very irrational, and so Vulcan as a society has found a way to channel this by creating very strict rituals to sort of channel that violence and that aggression in order to make sure that it doesn't get out of hand. All of this comes from one episode, a mock time, and it is quite possible that another writer in the hands of a lesser writer than Harv Bennett, because i got to give him credit, might have said, yeah, whatever, move on. But they add it into this movie because he's aware of it because he saw the episode. And it it builds on, it adds that little extra bit because now we have some great character moments between Spock, who now has become, will become a teenager soon. They use like four or five actors over the course of the film. Interactions between teenage Spock and Savick because Savick knows how to help. Now, you know, there's, I suppose, the implication that they have sex. That's never suggested Uh, in the novelization of Star Trek IV. The suggestion is the reason she doesn't return to Earth with the crew of the Enterprise, Savik, is because she's pregnant with Spock's child. But that's the novelization. They are not canon. Maybe that was uh, a cut scene. But hey, if it ain't on the screen, it's not canon. Nonetheless, this is a... A simple scene that gets into the the details of uh, societies and the details of species. The same way that the you know two different ways of saying success and Klingon. Kapla. It's a nice detail, and it's the reason I think this film, in many ways, is better than Star Trek 2, because it takes the time to express those details. This is neat. I have never seen this before. I have. I have. Unfortunately, I'm going to describe a visual. I've seen this film dozens of times, and I've never noticed this. They look off in the distance just as the sun drops below the horizon. And we see this, uh, you know, the sort of the the forest below. Because at this point, uh, David Savick and Spock have taken a refuge on a hill or a cliff or whatever. There are three lights moving through the forest. Of course, that's Krugin and his two men. I'd never noticed that before. That's really neat. It's a neat detail I had not seen before. Now, this is a sort of an 80s girl moment where... David realizes someone has to deal, Savik and and David realize someone has to deal with the Klingons and she says, I'll go. And he says, no, no, I'll do it. Give me your phaser. He's a scientist with not a day of military training. Lieutenant Savik is a Starfleet officer who's trained to fight, who's trained to use her phaser, but she's the girl. I mean, yeah, I get it. She has to be around to look after Spock, but at the same time, he's not qualified to take on an infant with, uh, with a spoon in his hand, let alone three Klingon warriors she is but because it's the 80s and she's an 80s girl she can't she can't fight back it, it's one of the few times the 80s in a thematic way sneaks into this film it's kind of annoying in the meantime kirk and crew are speeding towards genesis they realize that Chekhov picks up a transmission from starfleet to the grissom you know warning about the enterprise and grissom is not responding so you know now we have all three storylines converging of course kirk has no idea what he's walking into I would suggest this is one of the problems of Kirk without Spock. He's too daring. He's not careful enough. He doesn't think things through. I wonder if Spock had been part of this plan. Okay, yeah, I know that Spock being part of a plan to rescue Spock's dead body, whatever. But if Spock had been part of this plan, I wonder if it had been more careful. Because this is the one thing. You know, it's funny. It was an early episode called "The Enemy Within," I think it was called, where uh, Kirk is split into two by the transporter. There's good Kirk and bad Kirk, and bad Kirk is this paranoid, uh, angry, violent guy. By the way, that episode is the uh, it's the first episode of the the uh, Vulcan nerve pinch, but whatever uh, trivia. But you know, we see that Kirk. You know, he needs to be a whole person in order to function as a captain. He can't just be good guy or bad guy. He has to be both. But really what we're realizing is it's Kirk, even as a whole person, is only half a commander. He needs the wise counsel of Spock and he doesn't have it here. So he's about to walk into or warp into a, a situation. He has no idea what's going on and it will cost him his ship. And now we get to see Spock as a young teenager suffering through Ponfar Farr. And uh, Savick sort of walks him through, which is a lot of stroking of fingers. It's meant to be, I guess, sensual, but also Vulcans, you know, because of you know the nerve pinch and, and, and mind melding. And a lot of it has to do with with touch and their hands. And I'm not sure who decided on the, the rituals, the sort of the sexual rituals around Ponfar. Maybe it was Nimoy. I'm guessing it was him. It seems like the sort of thing he would do because he was a method actor. Uh, and, and this is the sort of thing I think he would have thought about. But whatever it is, it's a really good scene. It's very subtle. Certainly no action movie today would, would do this. It would either be a blazing gun battle every five minutes, or this would be an outright sex scene. And here, in, in what makes Star Trek as classy as it almost always is, it's just the scene of, of the stroking of fingers as a way to calm Spock down. Of course, the Klingons detect the Enterprise before the Enterprise can see them, so they cloak, it's interesting that you know the enterprise is a much more powerful vessel than the the Klingon bird of prey, but of course, there's only a handful of people on board. everything's automated they didn't expect to go into battle. they're not on the lookout for anything more than Grissom, which they should be able to spot on their sensors to say nothing of a of a Starfleet transponder so they are being they're already at a disadvantage over an inferior vessel, and down on the planet of course david and 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 Savok are captured by the Klingons. David uh, clearly has taken a few hits to the head. He's bleeding. And here's Cruj. I've come a long way for the power of Genesis. And what do I find? A weakling human, a Vulcan boy, and a woman. The interesting thing is, is that, you know, he says a woman, like, oh, it's just a girl. But what we know is that Klingon women, especially within the warrior clans, uh, you know the great houses. They're fighters, just along, just just like men are. There's no feminine, girly Klingons. I mean, I'm sure there are, but they're viewed equally with men in society. There is a slightly weird purity thing going on with Klingon, Klingon women, which you'll see if you see the the wonderful Deep Space 9 episode. I think it's called "Looking for Paromok in All the Wrong Places," where Quark Ferengi tries to romance Lady Grilka, who is the Uh, the head of the noble lady of a Klingon house and you know it's a a really cool scene so you know but even if she's you know she has a male escort and you know men may not approach her and all this sort of thing the fact is she's still viewed as a warrior so you know again this is sort of early you know this this is them you know sort of projecting an 80s view of women onto the Klingons but thankfully that goes away as Star Trek develops the Klingon culture One thing I find interesting, I'm just noticing a close-up of Krooge, the the makeup for the Klingons wasn't great at this point. They hadn't developed it as well as they would later in Star Trek The Next Generation, where they had more time to experiment. It's clear that the makeup is giving uh, Christopher Lloyd some problems because his eyes, like his uh, his eyelids are extremely red and puffy, uh, despite there being no makeup around the bottom. So clearly this is a problem for him. And now we get to see this, you know, the sort of cat and mouse game between the Enterprise and the Bird of Prey. You know, Krooge is on his way back up to the ship. This is another scene that I used to watch on Super Channel, so I've seen it many, many times. You know, with the Enterprise approaching and the uh, the, the Bird of Prey, which is cloaked, sort of saying, you know, you're getting closer and closer. And then they uncloak, and they fire on each other, and both ships are terribly damaged. It's sort of a continuation of the theme of the battle between Reliant and Enterprise in Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, this feeling of submarine warfare, that it's not blazing action and ships whipping back and forth. This is not a Star Wars battle. This is battleships, not fighters. So the battle ends with Kirk firing on their ship, and and it kills Kruge's pet, Krug turns around. He orders the ship. You know, he orders the Enterprise fired upon. The Enterprise can't get its shields up. It takes a, a torpedo to the rear. Of the the saucer blows out the automation. So you know, the Enterprise is dead in the water. No, no shields. No maneuverability. Nothing. No, certainly no weapon. You know, when Crusoe and Crusoe and Kirk talk, you know, it's a lot of bluster. Kirk says, you know, he surrender. Krug knows he's full of shit. He says, no, no, you surrender. I have people below who matter. Uh, And now we know the stakes are pretty damn high because Kirk realizes that David and Savick and Spock, who he dishes how he learns he's alive, they're being held hostage. So suddenly the stakes are wicked high. They're far higher than Kirk ever expected. Again, he's blundered into this situation and he's come across someone uh, in many ways as ruthless as Khan, but with a different motivation. Khan cared about Kirk. It was all about Kirk and revenge on Kirk. Krug doesn't care about Kirk. He wants the Genesis torpedo. He wants the technology, either for the glory of the Empire or more than likely for his own glory with the Empire serving him. He just doesn't care who he kills along the way. Kirk is a speed bump. It's interesting that as they speak several times, Kirk asks, you know, who who are you? And Obviously, he knows he's Klingon. Krug refers to himself as your opponent. You know, this is your opponent speaking. And he says, well, who is this? He says, it doesn't matter who I am, who I have. That's what's important. You would expect a Klingon to say, well, I am, you know, this guy from this noble house. And, you know, because he wants his exploits sung about, you know, in songs of glory. Krug isn't like that. He wants power, and he's happy to use subterfuge and secrecy as a way to get it. He's a very, very different, very non-stereotypical Klingon, maybe because he's the first Klingon we've ever really had a chance to look at in detail, even more so than the various Klingon commanders in the original series, which were frankly just stand-ins for Soviet commanders. There's a wonderful conversation where Kruge allows Kirk to speak with Savik, and this is how he learns that Spock is alive, and then he speaks to David, and it's the last time they will speak. I'm going to play the scene. Hello, sir. It's David. I'm sorry I'm late. It's okay. I should have known you'd come. Savik's right. This planet is unstable. It's going to destroy itself in a matter of hours. David, what went wrong? I went wrong. I don't understand. I'm sorry, sir. Just don't surrender. Genesis doesn't work. I can't believe they'd kill us for it. So, what I like is that David has owned up to his mistakes. He's made the mistake of provoking Krooge. And so Krooge orders one of them killed. He says, I don't care which. <inaudible> the Klingons are going to kill Savik, but David sacrifices himself and he's he's killed. He's stabbed in the stomach brutally and he bleeds to death and dies. And then when he finds out, he you know when Kirk finds out because Dave you know Savick gets back on the line and says, you know Admiral David is dead, and he, of course she says it matter of factly because she's a Vulcan, and he collapses, he he falls out of his seat, he starts to cry, and it's clear that as broken as Kirk was, now it's even worse. Things have gotten that much worse for for poor James Kirk. I should also note this is where we first see the Klingon Dachtag. It's a it's that. Stereotypical Klingon dagger with the two sort of claw blade that that come out when you hit a button, and the the pommel has like this spiked ball on it. So much of the look of the Klingons into the twenty in the twenty third and twenty fourth century was determined by Star Trek the motion picture and Star Trek three, like the uniform that Krug and his men, and really the the Klingons from the. From Star Trek The Motion Picture, that is the same uniform that you'll see being worn 80 years later in the time of Star Trek The Next Generation. Their, their their disruptors look the same, their their knives look the same, and it's I mean, a lot of that is, frankly, that they didn't have the budget, you know, Paramount didn't have the budget when it introduced Klingons in, in later movies and in Next Gen. They just didn't have the budget to redesign their uniforms or anything like that. And so they just sort of went with it. But it becomes part of the lore of Star Trek that this is a society that is stagnated culturally that they're using the same ship designs the same weapons designs the same uniform design because none of that matters the only time we ever see sort of a different uniform in the 23rd or 24th century for Klingons it is in Star Trek VI when we see the various members of the Klingon High Command: the Chancellor, you know, Gorkon and his, his, his daughter, and his uh, his military attaches. They wear more stylized leather-looking versions of the standard uniform because, of course, they're the you know the High Command of the Klingon of the Klingon Empire. But even their troops still just wear the standard Klingon gear. Again, it's one of those things where budgetary requirements become part of canon. And of course, this is the point where Kirk will acquire a new defining feature, which is his absolute hatred and distrust of Klingons. Yeah, he's dealt with Klingons throughout most of his career, but he's in the episode Day of the Dove... Uh, with I think it was Commander Kang, he was forced to team up with him in order to defeat uh, an entity that was giving them both grief. I think it was Kang. Whatever the episode was, Day of the Dove. But here it's the death of his son that has done it. Like in Star Trek, he actually says, um, "I've never trusted a Klingon, and I never will. I I've never forg- I will never forgive them for the death of my son." And and this is that point right here. And so of course at this point, uh, Kirk, you know, says he'll surrender, and Crude says, you know, take every last man, form a boarding party, take you know, take the ship we're going to transfer our flag there and take Genesis from their own memory banks. It's interesting because, you know, the crew of a Constitution-class vessel will be like three, 400 people. A Klingon bird of prey has got like maybe a dozen officers. He really thinks he's going to overpower, you know, 400 people. Because again, he has no idea that there's only five of them aboard. His plan is still just to abandon the, you know, the damaged bird of prey, take a, uh, a Federation vessel he would have no idea how to fly. And, you know, it's it's pretty gutsy. Kruge mm. is... He's a little two-dimensional, but he's ambitious. No one can say he isn't ambitious. And now we see that Kirk's plan is to lure the Klaon boarding party on board, and he's going to blow up the Enterprise. Now, this... this sequence of how to blow up the Enterprise, they actually lifted from the original series. Again, this is Harve Bennett and his attention to detail. They pulled this, I forget which episode, the name of the episode, it's the episode with the guy with black on one side of the face and white on the other, who's opposed to someone else on his planet, who was also black and white, but reversed, and he threatens to blow up the ship, Kirk does. It is to Nimoy's credit, and to James Horner, the composer's credit, and to the credit of Star Trek and its understanding of pacing and the use of science and, and technology, that they create tension and drama out of just people giving information into a computer. What I love is that when Kirk doesn't tell him what he's going to do, he just initiates it and both Scotty and Chekhov look at him in horror, but then immediately good Starfleet officers that they are, they're right on board. They don't question. They don't say, Captain, are you sure? My God, Captain, what are you doing? No, they're just, they're into it. They, they accept that this is what has to happen. There's also a bit of really good acting from James Doohan because as Chekhov is speaking speaking his part of the code, Scotty is looking back and forth between Chekhov speaking and Kirk because, of course, the Enterprise is his first love as a ship. He admits that, you know, that he served a chief engineer on six ships, but the Enterprise was always the one he thinks about. And so he's, he's saying goodbye to an old friend in a way that I think even it isn't for Kirk. And, and again, it's... Nimoy knows how to direct people and their use of eye focus you know he did it with the Klingon looking you know being told to feed the Krooge's pet and now with Scotty looking at Kirk like my god man what are we doing despite the fact that he supports Kirk and he's going to do what Kirk asks it's still you know he's being asked to destroy his own child and that is all conveyed purely through through looks and so there's a switch off where you know the the enterprise crew beams we don't know where the klingons come on board they race to the bridge they don't understand why it is that the 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 corridors of the ship are empty so they go aboard they go aboard the bridge of course there's no one there except the countdown and the boarding party commander communicates back to kruger my lord the ship appears to be deserted how can that be they're hiding Yes, sir. But the bridge seems to be run by computer. It is the only thing speaking. Speaking? Let me hear. Nine, eight, seven, six, five. Get out! Three, Get, out of there! Get out! One. And the Enterprise explodes. The, the bird of prey gets out of the way. And then it's interesting. Like the... When they blew up the Enterprise, there was clearly an understanding that this had to be not just a spectacular piece of special effects, but there had to be a symbolism to it. So the first thing that explodes is the bridge, the epicenter of drama on this ship. And then we see the surface of the saucer start to collapse in on itself, including the... The markings, USS Enterprise, like it's slowly, it is slowly eating away at this beautiful ship in a purely symbolic way, the bridge, and then the name of the Enterprise, and then the the saucer explodes, like half of it is sheared off, and then it just burns up in the atmosphere. And that's where we see that Kirk and company have beamed down to the planet, they're standing on a cliff, and they watch the Enterprise burning up in the atmosphere. My god, What have I done? What you had to do. What you always do. Turn death into a fighting chance to live. It's a really well thought out scene. Again, this is attention to detail. That it's not just this big wild explosion with as much flash and grandeur as possible. It's a very personal act of destruction. The bridge. The name. The saucer. You know, sort of deforming the shape of the ship and then watching it burn and seeing what's left of that, that mutilated form burning into the atmosphere. It's, it's very moving. So now we start to realize that the core itself is, is unstable. Sulu points that out. We see that the, the environment has changed. It's, you know, there, there's clearly volcanic activity in the area. There's, there's earthquakes. Things have gone very badly. The two crewmen, the two Klingons who Kruge left behind, guarding Savik and Spock. They don't know what's going on. Of course, they haven't heard from the boss, you know, and and the Enterprise crew is is approaching. In the meantime, things get really bad for Spock because he is he's sort of attached to this planet in terms of his growth, and it torments him. It's clearly quite painful. And at one point, the pain becomes so unbearable that Spock sort of runs off, and a Klingon tries to intercede, and Spock course, is a Vulcan, throws this Klingon. There goes the Klingon. People forget that Vulcans are much stronger than humans. They're easily as strong as Klingons. And the other Klingon sort of runs in to see what's going on, and we see that Spock's face is, is starting to bubble and expand. It's not a great special effect. It's the one thing that I'm not sure what company they used for, uh, for the makeup effects. It doesn't work all that well. It probably would have been better if we had just not seen the face, but yeah, it's a directorial choice. It, it's one of the. It's probably the only special. One of the only special effects, other than the scene where we see Excelsior in space dock, that doesn't hold up. And then the Enterprise crew shows up, and that Klingon, that second Klingon, gets phasered, and he's dead. I thought that the first Klingon, who was thrown by Spock, had lived, but apparently not. This is where they come face to face with Savik and Kirk sees David's body and lays his coat over him. It's kind of a touching scene. You know, the scene where Kirk approaches David's body and he, he kneels down beside it and he gently lays his cloak or his, his coat over David. Nemoy does a lot with just looks because we see McCoy and then the camera pans to Scotty as they watch Kirk say goodbye to his son and there there's no dialogue. It's just the look in their eye that despite this chaos and all this death and destruction and the fact that their planet the planet under their feet is literally destroying itself. They take the time to look at this just as they did when he realized, you know, he, when he was told that his son had been killed, you know, or the point where he orders the destruction of the vessel. A lot is done with just looks. So maybe that's what stands out to me most is how much work is done just with the way these people look at each other. The, the, the intensity and the, the staring and the, the the looks of sympathy and awe and, and love and camaraderie. And then Cruz shows up. So you start to get an impression that Kruge is more like Khan than maybe I'd given him credit for. Because he beams down, of course, weapon at the ready. He beams down on his own, despite the fact that there's you know, two or three other people. He could certainly have taken at least one of them with him. But he comes down on his own to face Kirk. He forces Scotty and Chekhov and Sulu and Savik to step away from Kirk and an unconscious Spock. He, you know, he orders Malts, who's on board the ship, played by John La Roquette, to beam them up. And Kirk says, well, you should take the boy. And Kirk says, no, because you wish it. Spock is probably just as value, valuable a prisoner, if not more, than any of the others. But he is happy to let this guy die. He's happy to let Spock die simply because it will hurt kirk crooge realizes that his gambit to to act on his own to seize genesis he realizes it's all gone belly up and yet he's you know in the end he's decided screw it i'm just going to be vengeful i'm going to be cruel and brutal i'm not sure whether that's inconsistency of writing or whether that's just part of his his personality we don't get a chance to delve into but one way or the other it works and this is where we realize that Kruge really has decided to go down in a blaze of glory. Genesis! I want it! Beam the Vulcan up! And we'll talk! Give me what I want, and I'll consider it! You fool, look around you! The planet's destroying itself! Yes, accelerating, isn't it? If we don't help each other, we'll die here! perfect then that's the way it shall be and really what follows is a very star trek-y knockdown drag out fight there's there's no way that kirk should be able to defeat a, a klingon warrior but he does because of course it's star trek federation always gets to win in the end and crooge falls to his death again a special effect that doesn't work that well There's this amazing scene just after Kirk kicks Krooge to his death is that we look out across the landscape and of course it's nothing but volcanic hell. And then there's this bright sun in the distance and then over top this super thick canopy of clouds and it looks like he's standing in hell. It's actually quite terrifying, but I got to give ILM credit. They created something that is destructive and terrifying and yet beautiful all at once. It's a beautiful piece of art direction. Kirk grabs the body of Spock, the unconscious the unconscious form of Spock, he's not dead, picks up the communicator, and he apparently knows enough Klingon to yell Malts activate the beam. It's the Klingon equivalent of beam me up, Scotty. I also like that they took the time to show... Nimoy took the time to show the destruction of the planet. It's not just he beats Krooge and then he beams up. He takes the time to show things burning and the, and, and the ground tearing itself apart. And we really... This is very much a, du- a juxtaposition with the first views of the Genesis planet at the end of Star Trek II and the beginning of Star Trek III of this lush, beautiful paradise. Now it's it's gone from paradise, paradise gained to paradise lost. Uh, it's one of those things, you know, I would said that what, what sort of stuck out to me was that they they carried on with the themes of Wrath of Khan, but in some cases they flipped him. And here's a good example of that. The promise of paradise ends in hell. Okay, so it turns out I was wrong. I thought that Kruge had others aboard the vessel with him. Turns out it was just him and Maltz. Because when Kirk boards the ship, he comes onto the bridge where Maltz is holding the rest of the crew at gunpoint, and, of course, now with a phaser on him, he surrenders. He asks, you know, Kerr asks, how many more? And, and Scotty says, just him. This adds, you know, this sort of leads to one of the the funnier lines in the, in the movie. We've got to break out of orbit. You, help us or die. I do not deserve to live. Fine, I'll kill you later. And then there's another bit where where Sulu, Chekov, and Scotty are trying to read Klingon, trying to figure out how to fly the goddamn ship. Now, my understanding, and this may be wrong, the right or wrongness of this, I attribute to an old friend named Darren who read this in a movie facts book. That the explosion of the Genesis Planet was the most film ever used in, used in a single scene. That ILM had filmed this explosion at some ungodly frame rate, so that they could slow it down, so that it would, you know, sort of seem a, you know, a normal speed and they could just get that much more detail out of it it wouldn't be jerky so it's it's filmed at hundreds of frames per second I'm not sure whether that's true or not you know the bird of prey sort of warps out as as a, a chunk of the planet sort of explodes into space thus ends the planet and then there's this quick moment where Sulu and, and Scotty are sort of looking at the screen and we know that in their hearts they're saying goodbye to the Enterprise and then Shatner says, goodbye, David. They each have their own thing to say goodbye to. And then we have the second half of the Maltz comedy bit. Mr. Chekhov, take the prisoner below. Aye, sir. Wait! Wait. You said you would kill me. I lied. And then there's a, a beautiful scene between DeForest Kelly and an unconscious Spock. Of course, it's all on DeForest Kelly. I think people forget what a good actor DeForest Kelly was. Again... You know, I've mentioned. I know. I know. I mentioned this earlier that people sort of sneer at him and the over. He overacts, but here's a man suffering serious psychological problems because his his human brain has you know one and a half people packed into him and and it's a little rough on him. But there's something about the scene where he goes from sort of this manic pleading, like help me, tell me what to do with what you've given me. But at the same time, there's a tenderness to it because while mccoy and spock have always fought it's very clear and it's always been clear that they value each other they they do after a fashion love each other this is clear even in the original series in amok time where spock doesn't just invite kirk to the planet to witness the ponfar rituals the marriage uh, with T'pring, but he says you know he wants mccoy to come as well because it's his, he is his closest friend he and he and and Kirk, our Spock's closest friend. And then we're on Vulcan, and we see that Sarek is there, and so is Uhura. So clearly, she has somehow made her way to Vulcan. Now, in the novelization, which I know is not canon, what they explain is that after locking Mr. Adventure in the closet and beaming uh, Kirk, Sulu, Chekhov, McCoy aboard Enterprise, she flees to the Vulcan embassy. They never really explain it, but... Clearly Uhura and Sarek have had some interactions because here they are speaking. It has been left to Uhura to convey to Sarek that Kirk and crew are on approach and it is Sarek who, who's using Uhura as the conduit back. Ambassador, they are on approach. They're requesting permission to land. Permission granted. Tell them, tell Kirk, we'll be ready. Now they show, you know, the... Klingon bird of prey flying past Mount Silea, which is this huge mountain that about halfway up has a platform, sort of this flat part upon which there's clearly some sort of ceremonial ceremonial construction. And there's a path along the side of the mountain leading up. It's got a very Tibetan monk look to it. In fact, even the, the Vulcan monks themselves are dressed that way and they chose some Asian actors, uh, which is fine You know, the one thing over the course of the many decades of Star Trek is that they show that not all Vulcans are white. There are black Vulcans. There are Asian Vulcans. Obviously, they're not actually Asian, but they're choosing Asian actors. The point I'm trying to make is that in a series that was often rightfully criticized for having an awful lot of white humanoids in it, uh, they've made the effort to show that Vulcan is as multiracial as Earth is. They don't all look the same, whereas, you know, on Andor... You really only have sort of two versions of Andorians. Uh, there's the ones that are white and the ones that are blue. Klingons, you know, they all kind of look the same, though they're, 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 the ridges on their head are, you know, look a little different and their pronunciations are different, but they kind of become this monoculture. We never learn enough about Andorians or any, most other species. But Vulcans are shown as a very multiracial group, I'm not sure how much of a monoculture it is. Probably somewhat of a mon- monoculture because ever since the sort of the re-revealing of Surak's teaching, he's the one who believes in the Vulcan philosophy of logic and the, sh- and the suppression of emotion, they've sort of come together as a species for the second time. There's a great trilogy of episodes of, of Star Trek Enterprise that talks about that. Actually, the Vulcans get some of their best development as a society in Star Trek Enterprise, which is a, a, a woefully underrated Star Trek series. But anyway, back to this. We're looking at a very almost Tibetan look to it. Uh, the special effect, again, I think it holds up really well. We get to see the bird of prey land. Remember, it is a tiny little ship. The wings sort of turn upward instead of sort of because it's, a, it's shaped like a V. And instead of the V pointing downward, the The wings flap up and it, and it lands. And overall, it's a pretty good effect. You know, you see the spotlights on the vessel and uh, it's 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 well done. There's something very mournful about the way they disembark from the back of the the ship. The vessel is landed, and sort of the gangplank comes down from the back, and here are all these crew members burying the body of their fallen comrade, while Vulcan monks and guards and whatnot, all dressed in very ceremonial gear, not science fiction-y at all, very fantasy-like. They have poles, they have flowing robes, these weird-looking hats. They awaited, and it's it's very sad, despite the fact that we know probably something good will come of this. You know, Kirk has lost everything. He's lost his life. He's lost his best friend. He's lost his son. He's lost his ship. You know, he's lost his entire life. He's lost everything. Here he is bearing the body of, of his comrade with the help of those members of his family who are still around him. And the Vulcans allow Uhura to greet them. The first thing Uhura does is she hugs Kirk. Because, of course, by this point, I'm sure she knows all that's gone on. She's probably been informed by someone in the crew in communication with her. And then finally we get to see Mount Saleya, sort of the ceremonial platform. It's, it's like there's sort of a, a landing on the mountain, and then separate from that... This outcropping of rock, and they were connected by a sort of like think of a sort of like a I don't know a finger sticking out from the mountain. And there's this bridge built between the mountain and this finger of rock. And onto this rock has been built this outcropping has been built a, uh, a how would you describe it? It looks like a a bowl, and in it is like it's purely ceremonial. It's, I'm guessing that it was the rock itself, and it has been carved. And Kirk and crew have. Carried the body of their uh, of Spock up this, this all this way up half the side of a mountain, where a Vulcan priestess has greeted them. I suppose this is the time to start talking about Vulcan mysticism. You know the Vulcans are a science-based culture; they're a logic-based culture. And you'd think, well, why would they have so much ceremony, so much mythology around them? And they never really explain that. Uh, to say nothing of the rather, as the Doctor from Voyager puts it, the rather Victorian sensibilities about sex that Vulcans seem to have, the way they won't talk about it with anyone. And the best I can reason is that Vulcans are, you know, Vulcans are a very passionate uh, species. They, they, They feel very intensely. It's why the wars almost destroyed them. And it's why Surak said, we must shed emotion. Of course, you can't shed emotion. You can only suppress it. And the thing with ceremony and doctrine is that it is a bulwark against chaos. You know, myself being an atheist, I often look at ceremony of the ceremonies of Judaism, which is the religion from which I come, or having attended church many times through you know with the army and, and, and various other reasons, you know, funerals and weddings and whatnot, I sort of look at the, 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 the ceremonies surrounding Christianity of its various flavors and I sort of roll my eyes. But it creates a it creates a pillar of stability. We can always fall back on this. I don't know what to do. Well, we've always done it this way. Let's carry on doing it this way until we figure it out. And this seems to be part of how Vulcans as a species, as a society, have, have survived their own worst attributes, their own extreme emotions. It's not just that they embrace logic. It's that they chose the ceremonies and these sorts of old beliefs, and they've held on to them as part of a way to keep them stable. So yes, their their marriage ceremonies can in, involve a fight to the death. There's nothing logical about that, except that this is the way they've always done it. It is, you know, it has come down to us from the time of the beginning, as they say. And these sorts of mystical rites, though I'm sure every Vulcan knows, they're purely there for the ceremonial. You know, they're purely there for the the ritual aspects of them like there's there's they don't believe they're appealing to gods but the ritual as an act of the ritual as an act of stability has helped them as a species and it seems to have worked but you wind up with this really there's a weird, weird dichotomy within this culture of the purely logical and the scientific versus a ritualized society that makes even medieval japan look Uh, footloose and fancy-free by comparison. Kaltor Falikal Sarek Child of Scone Child of Solcar The body of your son breathes still What is your wish? I ask for Fal Torpan, the refusion. What you seek has not been done since ages past, and then only legend. Your request is not logical. Forgive me, Tilar. My logic is uncertain where my son is concerned. That conversation, I think, right there, that is, that's Vulcan right there. The ritual with the, versus the logic. And then there's this, you know, there's not much ceremony. The priestess sort of says a few words in Vulcan, which they purposely do not translate. Though when Savik had spoken in Vulcan, they showed subtitles. And certainly when the Klingon spoke, they, they, they showed subtitles. Here they don't. And she just mind melds. She puts one hand on Spock's head, one hand on McCoy's head. And then over the course of what I'm guessing is hours, she takes the Katra, the sort of bits of Spock's knowledge and experience and personality, and takes it out of McCoy and puts it back into Spock's head. Now, half of that is fine, okay? She's used to mind-melding. But here's the problem. Spock is not Vulcan. Spock is half-Vulcan. He's half-human. Chances are she's never mind-melded with someone who is Vulcan half human and she's almost certainly never mind melded mind melded with someone who's fully human so it's not even half an easy thing it's like one quarter easy thing she's dealing with three quarters human and one quarter Vulcan and she only sort of manages it you know one thing we'll learn in Star Trek 4 is that Spock does not come through this 100% he will never be the Spock we knew this is a different character after this point. You know, that's not to say that he doesn't become a more, uh, you know, a more full character and, and it sort of comes back into his own. But at the same time, it's almost like someone who's born again, but who knows the, who has the memories and experience, but maybe not the emotions of his previous life. It's kind of weird. And it's, it's too bad that you don't get a lot more time to explore who new Spock is beyond Star Trek four and six, you know a little bit more. Like by the time we really get a chance to see him again, it's in the in the two part next gen episode called Unification, and we start to see he's a much more determined fellow. He's a much more single minded guy. You know in Star Trek six, which takes place in the twenty third century, Unification takes place in the twenty fourth. We see that Spock is a much more relaxed, and when we see uh, Spock in ugh, the JJ Abrams reboot, we see Spock from the prime universe, and he's become a much more relaxed individual. I'm not sure whether that defines as Canon or not, probably, but whatever. The point is, he is not the Spock we knew in the series. He is not the Spock we knew in Star Trek the Motion Picture, who had sort of stumbled out of a failed attempt at attaining Colinar, the shedding of emotion, which was never a possibility for him. He is not the Spock who sacrificed himself, to save the Enterprise in Star Trek Two, The Spock going forward is a different person. And I wonder how much of that is, because the Katra is not a fully formed copy of pre-death Spock, and how much of that is this priestess had to deal with a half-human, half-Vulcan, and a full-human. What I do notice is that during the ceremony, all of the Vulcans close their eyes. I'm not sure whether they're just concentrating, whether they're meditating to you know to chill out because this is going to be hours, or I don't know what it is, but everyone, including Savick, closes their eyes. And at one point during the scene, where you know, there's music and we see the passage of time, Scotty is seen sort of looking back and forth between the priestess working on Spock and McCoy, and looking back at Lieutenant Savick, whose eyes are closed as well. It's clear that these humans are, you know, they're the fish out of water. They don't know what's going on. They know enough to stay quiet. And, and don't move and just sort of let this happen around them. But it is interesting that even Savic, who, you know, is a Starfleet officer, who's been away from home for a long time, she immediately falls into doing what is expected of her and other Vulcans. I am reminded of attending my nephew's bar mitzvah and niece's bat mitzvah. They did it together. This was last year. Having not been in a synagogue for many years and certainly not being a believer, I still felt it important and respectful to put on the kippah, to stand when told, to say omen, that's just Hebrew for amen, to say that one required, you know, to wear the tallis, which is the white cloth you see Jews wear when they pray. I don't believe in any of that, but it was important as sort of one of the gang to do this. You know, I mean, this is family and you, you sort of, you do what you have to do, when in Rome, so to speak. And so immediately, Savick falls back into this. Uh, It's it's sort of, I guess, neat to see my own experience reflected in a movie that's so many decades old. I suppose it's one of the things that makes Star Trek what it is, is that it's like all good science fiction, like the best science fiction. It's a mirror uh, through which humans can look upon themselves and contemplate uh, what makes us human. And I had never thought about comparing this to my own life before. Movie is the last time I watched this movie I had not been to a synagogue in many years but there it is a little bit of reflection caused by science fiction. So the ceremony lasts throughout the night and we see uh, at the dawn it's sort of ended and they're cloaking Spock and giving him this white robe to wear because you know it would be inappropriate for him to wear his burial robes which if you'll recall from Star Trek 2, they aren't actually well they are his burial robes but really they were just his meditation robes that they buried him in but obviously it would be inappropriate for him to wear them now so they've given him these white robes, he's gone from black robes to white and McCoy passes Kirk and says I'm okay and then there's this Kirk I thank you what you have done is what I have done I had to do at what cost your ship Son. if i hadn't tried the cost would have been my soul that's very poignant because the cost would have been my soul he wreck you know even kirk who's a career man he recognizes there are things that are more important than his career and his ship and, and that's family and that's what this has been about like yes he lost his son and that's horrible but and i won't say that spock is more important than his son. He recognizes that the sacrifices he made had to be made because a member of his family was in need. And as I've said, this is what draws me to Star Trek. Of course, Spock comes down from the days where he's he's been brought back, where he's been cloaked up, and he looks upon the crew members. They're sort of lined up along the side of the And he looks over Savik, and he looks over Scotty and Sulu and, and Uhura and, and, and Chekov, and it's like he's not sure he knows them. And they all sort of look at him very hopefully, but he doesn't really respond to them until he gets to Kirk. My father says that you have been my friend. You came back for me. You would have done the same for me. Why would you do this? Because the needs of the one outweighed the needs of the many. You know the conversation is very halting, and and, and Spock, it sort of he says, you know, he's sort of remembering his own death, which is pretty, he's pretty moving. He, he says, you know, I have been and ever shall be your friend, and it's because he's remembering his own death. And he says the ship out of danger, which of course is what he'd asked after he saved the ship and before he died. And Kirk says, yes, you saved us all, don't you remember? And it's clear that Spock is, is struggling to remember who he is and what had happened. And then this is where we realize. Jim. Your name is Jim. Yes. He sort of stands up, Spock stands up a little straighter, and he looks at McCoy, and he looks at the others, and it's very clear he recognizes them he recognizes his family. Even if he doesn't know their names yet, even if he doesn't know the specifics, He now that he's got the name Jim in his head, suddenly he's home among his family, and they move in on him, and they put their hands on him. You know, it's the family coming together. And one thing I'll note is that Savick, who you know doesn't come quite as close as the others, she has a slight smile on her face, because even she can't quite contain it. And then Spock turns back to Jim, to Kirk, and raises his eyebrow, you know, the old, fascinating look on his face. And, yeah, we're back. The, the gang is back. The crew is back. The family is back together. And it, it's it's pretty wonderful. And then there's sort of a, a title card that says, And the adventure continues, dot, dot, dot. So we know there's going to be more. It might as well have said, And the family continues. So overall, i got to say, this is a pretty wonderful film. In retrospect, I will say it is it is better than Star Trek II. Uh, it doesn't have as great a villain as Star Trek II, and I think, frankly, what makes people think Star Trek II is the the better film is that it's got a you know the best villain in Star Trek history and it's got the best space battles in the show. But I think in many ways, for me, this is the better film because it's such an act of sacrifice in the name of family. It's hard not to be moved by it. Maybe because I had so few friends in that time period maybe that's why it, it impacted me i'd moved schools and i was about to move schools between uh, star trek, uh between grade three and grade four and maybe this just hit me at the right time when i realized that there were there were certain things that mattered and friendship was one of them something i've never been good at admittedly but this is why this movie is the best of the three by far not to say that star trek two and four are bad films they're not they're wonderful that's why i'm doing them as podcasts but three to me is the best how do I rate this? I, I can't rate this. I'm not sure if I rated Star Trek. I don't even remember if I'd rated Star Trek 2. And I'm not going to rate this one. I choose not to. And I choose not to rate Star Trek Four. How do I rate films that help define me? How do I rate characters that help define who I am as a person? How do you do that? These, these films, they all mean a lot to me. Transformers means a lot to me. Raiders means a lot to me. E.T., which I promise we'll do at some point, it means a lot to me. Even silly things like Clue or Flash Gordon or whatever, they all mean a lot to me. But this is Star Trek, and it is it helped form my progressive a, a view as, uh, as a person. It informs my politics. It informs my view of people. How do I rate that? So I'm not going to. I'm just going to say these films, they exist apart from other 80s, other 80s films, and they exist in a part of my heart that I hope never ossifies, I hope never, ever hardens. And I'm just going to leave it there until we do Star Trek four, And there it is.